You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. This is episode 55. And the significance of this episode is that it is our one year anniversary. Happy anniversary, guys. I am so excited to start another year with all of you to celebrate what we have shared this year, the information, the connections. And I love doing it. I loved getting to know all of you that reached out. I love just putting this together, connecting with you, whether it was responding to my emails or on social media and DMs or even in the comments. I love that you're here. And I'm really, really grateful for every single one of your listens. I decided to start our new year with my signature topic. And when I say signature, I mean that it is the way that I have come to conceptualize eating disorders and therapy in general based on all of the information that I've gathered. In essence, it's how everything connects with our emotional experience. And you know me, you know that I am not an emotional, mushy, gushy person, definitely no nonsense, tell it like it is which is probably an emotion too. Emotions run the gamut from positive ones to negative ones, strong ones, to maybe some of them that we feel like are, quote, weaker. And our relationship with our emotional experience or emotions in general is extremely telling. It's rich with history. It completely drives how we interact with this world, with other people, how we make decisions. It's completely encoded in us. And if we leave it encoded, then we let our relationship with our emotions, our history, drive every one of our decisions. A metaphor that I've used before, that we are not currently in the driver's seat if we do not shed more light on our relationship with our emotions. I know that in some of the previous episodes, we talked about biopsychosocial. So eating disorders obviously are not just caused by one thing. You don't like go away to boarding school or for a gap year and you come back with an eating disorder and you have one reason why it happened or you don't go through a very difficult time and that's the cause of the eating disorder. Rather, eating disorders are very complex. And they're based on so many different aspects. So sure, there's a genetic predisposition and there are different pressures that come from your upbringing or your environment. And then there's just your tendencies and how that all interacts and creates this perfect storm. But in this discussion, just talking about how eating disorders are developed and maintained is this really deep connection between our desire to almost dissociate from painful emotional experiences. And I'm talking about this completely in general. I think when I talk about trying to understand where all of this is coming from, 
and focusing on specific behaviors. So like, oh, on Monday night, I binged and let's look at the specifics is so much harder to do, especially when you're in the throes of your eating disorder. So for example, if you're struggling with binge eating and you say, Monday night, I binged and let's talk about what happened on Monday morning. Did you have an argument with your mom and how did you feel? Is a lot harder to do when there are binges happening all the time. So if this is a once in a while sort of thing where you're at that point in your recovery, sure, it can be extremely helpful and very telling. But when you're not at that place, what I would say is we have to zoom out. It's not just the one binge, the one desire to restrict, the one, I don't know, workout, if you will, that is connected and we have to understand this one particular incident. It's more so your overall relationship with food is connected with your overall desire to remove yourself from painful emotional experiences. So if we think about your history as kids, as toddlers, and then small kids and adolescents, we learn how to interact with the world based on the information that's internalized. So our environment, the people that are around us. And if you think about a two or a three-year-old, very, very young, they have emotional experiences and it's huge for them. I mean, terrible twos. You ever watched a toddler have a tantrum? They're feeling something. And that's exactly the way that they're feeling it. It feels physically overwhelming and they do not know what's going on and they don't know how to soothe themselves. If we don't get information from the outside world about what the heck is going on in my body and how do I soothe myself, then that is the experience that we continue to take throughout our lives. So if we think about Let's say the experience of frustration, the kid didn't get a lolly and he wanted a lolly and that is extremely frustrating to him, maybe other things, but we'll just take frustration. Frustration feels like the end of the world to the three-year-old in whatever capacity that looks like, but there definitely has to be a name. You are feeling frustrated. You're upset. And it doesn't matter if they're exactly the vocabulary you would use later on in life, but there have to be putting words to your physical experience. And then having an adult soothe the three-year-old about the lolly, you know, it's okay, or at least not trying to change their experience. I mean, how often do we see trying to make a kid feel a different way, like stop feeling that, or you're okay, like just shut up, or, you know, maybe not in like such a harsh way. And a lot of people mean well, but if this kid doesn't internalize it, the way that I'm feeling is okay because it's tolerable, not because I actually feel okay because I don't, then they'll never learn how to soothe themselves. So if we're thinking about a 29-year-old who is met with any form of frustration or anger or sadness or loneliness or hopelessness or rejection. I mean, like any one of these really difficult experiences, if they have not learned the blueprint of how to navigate these difficult emotions, they will become intolerable. And I'm not saying that negative emotions or quote negative emotions are ever going to become comfortable for someone. They're obviously negative, uncomfortable ones, but their purpose is to teach us. So If we feel guilt, then we have to learn or try to learn what is this guilt telling me? 
did I hurt someone? And if I hurt someone, maybe I can do things differently next time. But if we take an emotion that's meant to be just uncomfortable and negative and have a a learning experience attached to it and move it into the category of being completely intolerable, then we make decisions based on trying to avoid the emotion. Now, maybe your reaction to hearing this is, okay, so maybe I do feel that way, but if I've dissociated from my painful emotional experiences and I'm no longer aware of them, isn't that okay? Like, I'm fine with that. What I don't know is totally fine. Almost bliss. To you, I say that our emotions don't just dissipate. They go somewhere. It's not like we eradicate it by disavowing it. And so if we cannot communicate what's going on internally with our words, then our body is going to communicate in some way, shape, or form for us. So when we think about an eating disorder, Part of what that is doing is trying to communicate something, which is why I say that all of those messages are encoded in our relationship with food. Because if the communication is not happening verbally, then at the very least, we can try to understand what the symptoms are telling us. So they're sending messages via our behaviors and our urges, whatever that might look like, a binge, restriction, an urge to self-harm, The extreme feelings of guilt after a binge. I mean, you name it, it's all a message. And if we continue to push our emotions away in this way, then we get further and further away from our ability to be in touch with ourselves. So that means that we continue not to be in the driving seat for all of our decisions, whether it's relationships or in our career or just navigating the world in general. But then we need more and more to be able to communicate. And that's when eating disorders get worse and worse and worse because we lose our ability to communicate. And then we use this other thing to communicate and we need it to communicate even louder and louder sometimes when it's not heard. And we all know this, that eating disorders can go from disordered eating to a full-blown eating disorder to something that's really medically serious in a very short amount of time. And that is extremely dangerous, A, for some people in terms of mortality, but also what kind of life is that? Obviously, this is a lot easier said than done to start becoming more in touch with your emotional experience. The whole reason why potentially we're in this mess is because it is so intolerable to feel our emotional experiences. And so saying, here's the argument for why you should be in touch with your emotions is very nice, but it's a logical argument and it really wouldn't do anything if it just stayed logical. So the question is, what do we actually do about it? How can we actually address this? Now, I think similar to how the process goes for a kid, for a toddler, the very first step is to start putting words to your experience. And when I say experience, I mean starting with your physical experience. So some of the tools I like to use are doing a head-to-toe scan. When you're experiencing something to just go from your head all the way to your toes, meaning go through every body part and ask yourself, what am I feeling physically? Put words to it. My throat feels dry. My chest feels tight. There are butterflies in my stomach. My leg has extra energy. My fists, my hands are closing into fists. 
the more you can bring yourself to familiarize yourself with whatever's going on internally will begin to bridge that gap. Sometimes I also find it helpful to use the emotion wheels. And what it is, is like sort of the primary colors of emotions are in the middle. So the main emotions, and then it branches out into subtypes of that emotion. So say take anger, then it branches out into all different types of you know, resentment, annoyed, frustrated, all those kinds of things. And once you see it on the screen, then you have the option to choose what is it that I'm feeling? And I think that choosing from a group of emotions is a lot easier than conjuring up the word if you don't have the vocabulary for it. I think this process happens very well in therapy. So as a therapist, I can say, given what you're saying, these are one of two things I would think a person would feel and you can choose one. But if you're doing this on your own or trying to do this, sort of bringing this to your own therapy, I would encourage you to look at the emotion wheel. So there's the two aspects. There's trying to find more words for your physical experience, completely separate from your emotional experience, and trying to find more words for your emotional experience. And I think that once you practice doing this over and over and over again, you begin to develop this foundation of vocabulary for yourself, which ultimately is the process that we really had hoped you already done that you didn't have the resources to have done it yourself earlier or have done for you earlier, I should say. With that foundation, there is something so organizing about having words to put to your experience that feels soothing in and of itself. I don't know if you're an organized kind of person, but even if you are not, there is something particularly organizing about putting things down in list. So say your house is completely flying. You have a ton to do. You don't know when you're going to do it. You're completely overwhelmed and you write a list. I happen to love lists. So this is a, a weird joy of mine. I love just deriving pleasure from lists. Anyways, even if you're not, there's something particularly organizing. There's something about organization that is inherently soothing. So when I say building the foundation of your vocabulary for your emotional and physical experience, there is something inherently soothing about that in that it is organizing for you. But I think, and this is work that has to be done in therapy, the next step is to get the soothing that you deserve, that you need, that you didn't get after you have that organization and identification of what's going on. One thing that I want to keep in mind over here for you and your experience that sadly learning how to soothe yourself is not rocket science, although we'd like it to be, because if we don't do it or we don't do it currently, then shouldn't it be the most difficult thing in the world? Most complicated. I need three PhDs in order to do. And if it's simple, then why am I not doing it? So I don't want to say that it's complicated. It is simple, but it's also really difficult. And part of what's important is to be able to sit with your experience, have your therapist sit with you in your experience and not change it at all. So for example, if we go back to the toddler who didn't get the lolly and is really frustrated, part of learning to tolerate frustration is that I'm not going to fix it for you. I'm not going to give you a lolly and that's how you're going to soothe yourself. I'm going to sit with you and say that the frustration is really, really difficult and what you're feeling right now is really, really difficult. And I'm just going to sit in it with you because a couple of things happen. 
first of all, your emotions cannot possibly last forever. It just doesn't. They come and go in waves. And if you ride the wave, they will always pass. They won't if you just keep throwing fire on it, like judgment and I shouldn't feel this way and this is stupid and, and um, you know, I don't know, adding fuel to the fire in the sadness arena, which is hopelessness. Like, oh, this is never going to change. That stuff prolongs the emotional experience. But if you ride the wave, it inevitably will pass. And so there's something about just sitting in it that eventually it goes away. Not because you did anything, but because you allowed time to pass. And in doing that, you teach yourself, you teach whoever you're with, your therapist teaches you by not changing anything is that we don't have to do anything drastic in order for this to go away. And that is the key from taking an intolerable emotion that you're basically doing everything you can in order to avoid that emotion to only <laughs> say this sarcastically, only an uncomfortable or a negative emotion that it is something that of course you don't want to experience but you can tolerate. Once your mind and body begin to work together, so you're bridging this gap, you're bringing more awareness, more organization, and more soothing to your experience. So bridging that mind and body gap, and you're learning how to communicate all of that with your words. So once you're able to identify what's going on in your head and organize it, and you do learn more vocabulary, you can use words to communicate that then you'll no longer need to use your eating disorder symptoms in order to communicate. Now, obviously, this is sort of like a pretty package with a bow and saying, well, that's all you got to do, folks. And uh, that's it for your eating disorder. It'll just be like, all right, bye. I'm not needed. See you never. So of course, I'm not saying that this you know, often takes years, if not longer, for people in their own therapy. And I think that this is so much easier for me to talk about conceptually as opposed to be in it. But I do think that if we can conceptualize your journey, your healing, your relationship with food journey or your eating disorder recovery, whatever you want to call it, as healing emotionally and that they're very parallel, they're one in the same, if you ask me, then you can understand what is going on, A, in therapy and B, how you can see progress for yourself. So it's not the kind of thing that one day you dissociate completely and then you have to wait until you can completely communicate with words. It's over time you find these small, small changes and that's what feels like it makes the difference. So it's not like, okay, <laughs> this will take you 10 years. And until that, well, you're screwed. Totally not saying that. So there you have it. I do have a couple of episodes from last year that talk a lot more about some of the specifics of this. So like the mind and body disconnect and our relationship with our emotions and things like that. And I'm really excited for this coming year that I'm going to have a lot more of that. And some of my favorite analytic authors coming on for year number two of our podcast. But I'm hoping that at the very least, this can lay the foundation for some of your understanding, A, how my brain works and B, how you can work toward recovery. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. 
If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.